Today, words are plentiful. We can use as many words as we like. There are basically no limits. Send a 500-word text, no problem. Write a 10,000-word blog, absolutely fine. Want to publish a book? It takes just 30 seconds to do so via Amazon. If you want to post a minute-by-minute vlog of everything you say, that's fine as well. You just head over to YouTube or TikTok. But sharing this volume of words wasn't always this easy. For most of human history, we've had to be more considerate. Before phone calls, we had to handwrite letters. Before unlimited minutes, we had payphones. Before 24-hour news, we had 30-page newspapers. And look, when it comes to words, we've gone from limited to basically unlimited in just a few decades. You only have to look at Twitter's character count or YouTube's upload limits to see that. We can share more words than ever before. Words used to be a scarce resource, and now they're a commodity. And with this shift, Most of us, myself included, have stopped noticing the incredible impact single words can have. Instead, we focus on the sheer number of words we can bombard someone with. When trying to win an argument, we tend to overwhelm the opponent with endless facts and endless figures. When trying to sell an iPhone, Apple present a two-hour-long keynote. And yet, on today's nudge, my guest explains how the volume of words you use isn't that important. He says the power of persuasion doesn't come from more words, it comes from one or two magic words. All of that coming up after this quick break. Success Story hosted by Scott D. Clary is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Success Story features Q&A sessions with successful business leaders, keynote presentations, and conversations on sales, marketing, business, startups, and entrepreneurship. Back in December last year, Scott did an episode with marketing legend Seth Godin on how to hire well, which I think is well worth tuning into. So listen to Success Story wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm chatting with Jonah Berger, renowned professor, best-selling author, and behavioral science specialist in language. Here's Jonah introducing himself. My name is Jonah Berger. I'm a marketing professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, And I'm also the best-selling author of Contagious, Invisible Influence, The Catalyst, and most recently, Magic Words. Now, you might have noticed Jonah's words are a little bit muffled here. His audio wasn't great at the start of our recording, but we switched to a better quality mic in a bit, so just bear with us for now. Anyway, Jonah has spent his career analysing language, and he's discovered something really interesting. He's discovered that tiny shifts in the words we use have an incredibly large impact on how those words are perceived. You know, it's interesting. If you take a moment to reflect, almost everything we do involves language. You, you and I are speaking uh, right now through language. Uh, language is how we uh, make sales pitches. It's how marketers communicate the benefits of their products. Language is how leaders lead and salespeople sell. It's how doctors uh, talk to patients. It's how politicians talk to their audience. It's how parents talk to their kids. It's how people talk to their spouses, even our, even our private thoughts. Uh, rely on language. But while, while we spend a lot of time thinking about what we want to communicate, the, the big ideas that we want to get across in a meeting or an email or a presentation, we think a lot less about the specific words we use to communicate those ideas. And unfortunately, that's a mistake because subtle shifts uh, in language can have a big effect on our own uh, impact. Um, adding a certain word, for example, to a persuasive pitch makes uh, people 50% more likely to say yes. 
Um, rather than saying we like something, saying we recommend it makes people about a third more likely to take a recommendation. And, and in everything from the language we might use in email with colleagues at the office to the language someone might use in applying for a loan provides subtle insight into who they are and what's likely to happen to them in, in the future. And the words you use at the office, for example, in email can predict whether you're going to be promoted, fired, or or leave the company for a better opportunity elsewhere. The the language uh, people use in a loan application provides insight into whether they're going to default on the loan or, or pay it back. And so the interesting question becomes kind of what are these magic words and, and how can we take advantage of, of their power? Now, as always on Nudge, I was after some hard evidence to prove how adding or changing one word could alter behavior. So I asked Jonah for an example, and he shared an incredible study from the 70s that showed how even busy New Yorkers could be persuaded with just one magic word. A number of years ago, uh, some researchers uh, stopped some uh, folks in New York, New Yorkers, and asked them to do uh, something New Yorkers are, are not very happy to do. Uh, which is basically help others. So they they went to a local library. This is a, a few years ago now, where, pe- where people used to make copies at a copier machine. Uh, so you may remember being at the library and sort of making copies. And they went to a university library where students might make copies of, of books and things they're reading. Uh, and they went to uh, copy machines were being used. Um, someone is in line for the copy machine. And they basically interrupted people and they asked them whether they could use the copy machine. Uh, and in particular, they were interested in whether the language of their request impacted whether people would say yes, right? And, and most of us aren't sitting in copy machines most, most days trying to get people to, to say yes to allowing us to cut in line, but we are constantly trying to persuade others. We're constantly trying to get them uh, to do things we, we'd like them to do. And so the researchers wondered, well, hey, um, could the language uh, that requesters use uh, increase their impact? And so, um, you know, for some people, they said, hey, you know, can I use the copy machine? And not surprisingly, most people said no. Uh, but from some other people, they said, hey, can I use the copy machine because I need to make um, uh, you know, some, some copies or whatever uh, it is. So just to recap here, Harvard researchers are asking New Yorkers at the library to cut in line and use the machine. Sometimes the researcher says, hey, can I use the copy machine? And other times, the other 50% of the time, the researcher says, hey, can I use the copy machine because I'm in a rush? Which line? do you reckon works better? Well, let's hand back to Jonah to find out. Um, and they found that this way of, of asking the request, um, uh, using the word because, uh, increased people's likelihood of saying yes by around 50%. People are much more likely to say yes to the request um, when people use the word because. And you could say, well, well, hold on, maybe it's not the word because, maybe it was the reason that people gave after the word because, right? Because often when we say, I need to do something because, we then give, give a reason. And so they tried a, a few different situations. And in some situations, they gave people a good reason. Oh, you know, hey, um, uh, I, you know, I need to use the, the copy machine because I'm in, in a big rush. Um, uh, but in other situations, they gave people a terrible reason. It's, uh, I, I need to use the copy machine because I need to make copies, something that's obvious uh, already. But they found that even when the reason wasn't good, because still increased persuasion. And so it, it wasn't that uh, the reason drove the effectiveness. It was just the simple word because. By, by saying because, People said, oh, wow, you must have a reason. I don't even really need to necessarily listen to what that reason is. I'm more likely to support you because I, I can tell you have a need for this. The researchers found a 50% increase in persuasion simply by adding that word because. This is irrational. That word because shouldn't have mattered. In fact, given that the reason was meaningless, it might even reduce persuasion, making people less likely to agree. But that's not what happened. 
rather than decreasing persuasion, including this meaningless reason, actually increased persuasion just as much as giving a valid reason did. Persuasion wasn't driven by the reason itself, it was driven by the power of the word that came before it. Because. Jonah writes in his book that this copy machine study is just one example of how changing or adding a single word can dramatically impact persuasion. He shares in his book that saying you recommend rather than like something, so I recommend this podcast rather than I like this podcast, makes someone 32% more likely to take up your suggestion. Using the word whom in an online dating profile apparently makes men 31% more likely to get a date. And saying is not rather than isn't when describing a product makes people pay $3 more. So think about the words you use when you're promoting a product, making a pitch, or even creating a dating profile, because the words you use matter. In fact, Jonah says that the words you use when talking with your team can make them more or less creative. Here's Jonah to explain, this time with slightly better audio quality. Often we're trying to solve a problem. Maybe we're at the office, we're trying to come up with a new strategy. Maybe we're making a decision, we've got to figure out what thing to do. Or maybe we're at home, right? Uh, trying to figure out how to solve a problem with our spouse or partner or, or children. And, and so often in these situations, we're trying to figure out what to do. We use a particular word, um, and, and that is should. We ask ourselves, what, what should I do in this situation? Should I pick option A or B? Um, what should I do to come up with a solution? We use the word should. Um, but while that's a thing we often do, researchers wondered whether changing that word, a subtle shift again in, in language, one word to another, might help us be more effective. And so they asked people to solve a variety of different problems. For some of those problems, they had people use the standard strategy of, of asking what they should do, right? Thinking about what, what they should do. But for others, they changed just one word. Rather than asking them what they should do, they asked them what they could do. And, and they found something uh, quite interesting. Asking people to think about what they could do rather than what they should do uh, led people to come up with better solutions, uh, more effective solutions, and more creative ones. And the reason is very simple. Shoulds tend to narrow us a little bit. They tend to make us feel like there's only one right answer, one right path that we're going down. We just got to figure out what, what that is. But could encourage us to think a little bit more broadly to think about possibilities, to think about well, what, we, what we could do. And by thinking about what we could do, even though not all the things we could do are a good idea, by considering that broader set of possibilities, it helps us come up with a better solution overall. And, and so I think the answer here is really simple, right? We need to turn shoulds into coulds. Whether we uh, ourselves are trying to solve problems or be more creative ourselves, right? Thinking about what we could do will, will help us get there. Or if we're trying to help others be more creative, if we're trying to motivate a team to come up with a better solution, encouraging them to think about uh, coulds instead of shoulds will, will increase their impact as well. This Harvard study is pretty eye-opening. People are more creative when they're asked what they could do rather than when they're asked what they should do. For example, in the study, participants were asked to erase a pencil mark. They were asked to come up with creative ideas to erase that mark without an eraser, without a rubber. Those who were asked how could they do it came up with more creative solutions than those who were asked how should they do it. They recognised, for example, that a rubber band could serve the same function. Similarly, when needing a mask to avoid inhaling toxic dust, people who thought about what the objects could do in this study were more likely to recognise that they could use a sock to do the same job. 
So motivate your team by asking them what they could do to solve a problem. Ask your customers how your product could improve and ask your family where you could, not should, go on holiday. You will get more creative answers. In that example, we've seen how two letters, should to could, can change someone's response. But Jonah says it's not a one-off. Here's another example where just changing a few letters dramatically changed persuasiveness. A number of years ago, some scientists went uh, into a local preschool and they, they tried to get kids to do something kids are not very excited to do, which is help clean up, right? Um, there's a mess on the floor, a box, crayons, all these different things. And, and the scientists asked the kids um, uh, to clean up. Um, but they were wondering whether uh, changing the language they use could make kids more likely uh, to clean up. And so for, for some kids, they said, hey, um, uh, can you please uh, uh, help clean up? For other kids, they said, hey, can you please be a helper? Now, the difference between help and, and helper is, is quite small, right? It's only a couple of letters. Yet those couple letters made a, made a big difference. People were uh, over a third more likely, in this case kids, over a third more likely to help clean up when they were asked to be a helper uh, rather than, than help. And, and you could say, well, that's interesting. And you know, maybe that's helpful for my kids. But does that really work with adults? And, and what about like more consequential behavior? And, and more recently, some researchers looked at this question in the context of voting. Right? We all know we should vote. We all mean to vote, but not everybody does it. So they wondered whether uh, language could encourage people to turn out to, to vote. And so they sent uh, notes to people. For some people, they asked them to please go vote. For other people, they asked them to be uh, a voter. You know, again, the difference there is very small. In this case, only one uh, letter change, voter rather than vote. Yet that one letter led to about a 15% increase in people's likelihood of going to the polls. And so you might wonder why. Why is helper more effective than help? Why is voter more effective than vote? And so um, we are busy. There's um, lots of actions we wish we could take, but we don't have time. We need to go for runs, and we need to exercise more, and we need to vote and help and do a variety of different things. But what, what we care about more than taking certain actions is holding desired identities. We all want to see ourselves as smart and creative and, um, you know, a nice person and at least marginally healthy and athletic and all these things. And so we engage in actions to allow ourselves to see ourselves as holding those identities. Right? But if I want to see myself as athletic, I better go for a run uh, once in a while. But, but what that means is that by framing actions as identities, by turning, as, as you sort of said, uh, verbs in, into nouns, we can make people more likely to take those actions, right? Voting, oh, yeah, I know I should vote, but hold on. If voting is an opportunity to show myself and others that I am a voter, well, now I'm more likely to do it. Similarly, helping, I know helping is important. I know that I should help. But if helping becomes an opportunity to show myself and others that I am a helper, I'm more likely to do it. And so by, by turning actions into identities, we can make people more likely to take those actions. Or, or similarly, on the negative side, we can make them less likely to take undesired actions. Right? Losing is bad. I mean, no one wants to lose. Being branded a loser would be even worse. Cheating on a test is bad, but being branded a cheater would be even worse. And so by framing cheating uh, as being a cheater, um, people were less likely, for example, to cheat on, on a test. There's, there's even an old example of this in the United States around littering. You know, they used to say, don't litter, don't litter, don't litter. And then there's a famous campaign that says, don't be a litter bug. And, and what I love about this campaign is now it frames an action, littering, as an identity, being a litter bug which made people less likely to do it. And so when we're trying to get people to do something, right, frame it, uh, uh, an action as an identity, or when we want people to avoid doing something, frame that undesired action as an identity. Doing so um, can change how they see the behavior they're engaging in and shape their likelihood of, uh, of doing. Asking children to be a helper 
made kids 33% more likely to clean up, and asking adults to be a voter made folks 10.9% more likely to vote. And like Jonah says, the same tactic can be used to avoid negative actions. In the States, there's the Don't Be a Litterbug campaign. You can imagine this working really well on kids. No child wants to be associated with a bug or an insect. They don't see that as part of their identity, so they stop littering. But what about encouraging adults not to litter? Well, litterbug might not work too well. I don't think adults would resonate with the litterbug identity. So the UK, they tried something different. Their campaign encourages people to be a litter hero. The Keep Britain Tidy organisation asks Brits to join our national network of hashtag litter heroes. Now, I actually think this is a bad application of this strategy. Being a litter hero isn't exactly an identity we are brought up to admire. Unlike being a helper or being a voter, being a litter hero isn't a salient identity that most people desire. But the Australian government in the state of New South Wales has a different application that I think is far more effective with adults. They've come up with an anti-littering strategy that utilises the exact effect in a way that I think engages every Aussie. They tell Aussies, don't be a tosser. Drive down any stretch of motorway in New South Wales and you will see sign after sign telling people, don't be a tosser. And that's an identity every Aussie knows is bad. No one wants to be a tosser. And it works. Since the campaign began in 2013, there has been a 40% reduction in littering in the States. Jonah wasn't surprised when I told him how successful that campaign had been. But it's, it's, you know, what's so nice about that is, is I don't know whether maybe a tosser was already uh, an identity there, but it sort of takes something and anything can become an identity, right? Think about, um, uh, you know, creating content online. That's an action, right? Creating on a content online. But now there's also a noun for it, being a creator, right? Um, there's an action influencing others. People have influenced uh, people forever. Now there's an identity associated, being an influencer, right? Um, uh, it makes it seem more stable and, and more consistent. If I, if I asked you, I have two friends, you know, who do you think runs more often? One of them is a run. Uh, one of them runs and one of them is a runner. I would say, well, well the run, one who runs is a runner. Right? It sounds like a stable part of who we are. And so... By framing actions as identity, seems more stable, more persistent, can persuade others, can encourage us to engage in the right actions as well. There's lots of evidence to back this up. Jonah shares in his book that hearing a woman is a coffee drinker, rather than hearing she drinks coffee a lot, led observers to infer that she likes coffee more and was more likely to hold that preference in the future. Changing a verb-based description, so from drinks coffee to is a coffee drinker, made it seem like that person's attitudes or preferences were stronger and more stable. So let's use this in the real world example. I could tell advertisers for this show that I make podcasts, but that would make them think this is just a hobby. Rather, if I say I'm a podcaster, they're more likely to believe it's a professional endeavour that I'll continue working on for a while. With all this in mind, though, there is one important clarification to make. Using nouns can backfire. One study, which tried to increase participation in extracurricular science classes for children, tested this. The researchers tried two different messages. They said, in this class we will be doing science, so in today's class we will be doing science, versus being scientists. So today we will be scientists. These studies suggest that being scientists should work better, as it's an identity many of us want, especially children. 
But for young girls, unfortunately, it backfired. Being scientists reduced girls' interest in the game, despite it raising interest for the boys. The researchers speculated that the identity language could lead to problematic consequences if children have no reason to question whether they themselves are the kind of people who fit into the scientist category. The stereotype behind scientists leads girls to think that they can't be scientists, so they don't respond to this noun-based persuasion. So, only try and persuade with nouns if you know that it's an identity the listener wants and feels they can achieve. Okay. Time for a quick break. I'll be back in a bit with a great insight that every single marketer needs to learn. As many of you know, I have just quit my job to go full-time on Nudge. But prior to that, I spent my career working in startups. And startups aren't easy. It's long hours, small teams, tiny budgets. It makes marketing hard work, but it doesn't have to be. HubSpot for startups can help grow your business without growing your stress. Their all-in-one platform connects your sales, marketing and support all together. So you can increase your leads, you can fast-track your deals, smooth out support and join a platform that more than 190,000 top brands trust. HubSpot also offer discounts for startups on their top-rated customer platform and not the type of discounts that barely make a dent. So if you're ready to boost your marketing without breaking the bank, look no further than HubSpot for startups. To see how much you can save, visit hubspot.com startups. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Phil Agnew, and today we are talking about the influential power of words. Now, most marketers want to show positive reviews. They want to showcase happy customers praising their product. But which reviews to choose? See, not all positive reviews are perceived equally. In fact, Jonah has evidence to suggest that some reviews are a lot more persuasive than others. Some of the examples we've talked about are uh, shifting letters, uh, shifting words. In this case, we're not just shifting words, we're sort of shifting the tense um, that, that we use. And this is under the bucket of, of confidence. So um, how do we communicate confidence? What communicates confidence? One of the C's in, in the speak framework. And so um, when we're talking about things, we often use uh, the, the present tense. I, I can say, um, I loved that restaurant, um, uh, loved ED, I went, uh, you know, past tense, or I love that restaurant. I can say, I like that idea, or I liked that idea. Um, they did a good job or they do a good job. I enjoyed the presentation. I enjoy it. Um, uh, we can use, um, you know, I, I love Los Angeles. I love Los Angeles. Ed, I enjoyed the book or I enjoy it. But but it turns out that subtle shift versus present tense has a big impact on whether others take our recommendations, on whether others are persuaded by what we And so as you nicely mentioned, you know, we looked at around half a million online reviews. We also did a bunch of experiments where we manipulated the language we, uh, that people use. And what we found is that compared to using the past tense, um, I loved it, I enjoyed it, um, it worked really well. Using the present tense, I love it, I enjoy it, it works really well, is more persuasive. People are more likely to find a review helpful. They're more likely to go buy a product if someone suggests it when um, that person uses the, the present tense. And if you think about why, it goes something a little bit along the lines when, when we use the past tense, we are saying something was true, right? Um, I liked this book. It suggests that when I read this book in the past, it was good for me. Um, and so past tense often suggests something occurred, and it often suggests that it's a little bit subjective, right? 
um, you know, I like France or I liked France. Suggests that when I went to France, that particular time I went, I liked it. But that doesn't provide as much information about whether you will like it if you go in the future. Whether I say I like France, it's not just saying that I liked it that time I happened to go. It's moving what's towards what's called an assertion, right? I am generalizing. I'm not just saying from this one time I went, this is true, but that this is more generally true, right? And as a result, I seem more confident because I'm not just saying something about my personal experience when I went there one time in the past. I'm more willing to generalize. I'm willing to say I like France or this, or if, you know, if I say this vacuum works well, I'm not just generalizing. I'm not just saying this vacuum worked well for me when I used it. When I say this vacuum works well, when I say this restaurant has good food rather than had good food, it sounds like I'm generalizing to other people's opinions as well. And so because of that, it makes me seem more confident and it makes people more likely to follow my advice or my suggestions. This was a fairly simple study run by Jonah and his colleague Grant Packard on a grand scale. They started with books. They analysed around a quarter of a million Amazon book reviews and they found that reviews written in present tense were ranked as more helpful. Saying a book is rather than was a good read or has rather than had a good plot made the review more persuasive. Like Jonah says, the reason why is is fairly simple. Past tense seems like an opinion, whereas present tense seems like an assertion. So when you're sharing a review about your product, make sure the customer is saying that your product is good. And when you write a review for a restaurant you love, make sure you say the food is delicious. We live in an age where it is easier than ever to say more. There are almost no limits on how much we can say. And yet Jonah makes it clear that the volume of words we use just isn't important for persuasion. Instead, making subtle changes to the individual words, phrases or tense that we might use is far more persuasive. So to recap, if you want to be more persuasive with your words, you should give the reason behind why you're asking. So tell people you need to cut in line because you're making copies. You should ask your team how they could solve problems, not how they should solve problems. You can encourage actions by linking the action to a positive or perhaps negative identity. So be a voter and don't be a tosser. And finally, you should share your opinions using present tense to make that opinion more persuasive. It's time to end today's show. But before you go, I need to tell you that Jonah's book, Magic Words, is the best book I've read on marketing copy. So if you want to be an intelligent marketer, do go and pick up that book. Of course, there are other ways you could boost your knowledge as well. One way is to sign up to my newsletter. Those that do get a behavioral science tip each week and an email from me every single time an episode goes live. So don't be a lazy listener and sign up to that by going to nudgepodcast.com and click newsletter. I'll be back next week with another episode of Nudge and you should definitely listen to that because it's another episode of Nudge. All right. Cheers, folks. Thanks so much for listening.